E.E. E. Cummings was against the war, the Great War, the one we now call World War I, but he nevertheless volunteered for the Red Cross Ambulance Service in France. His anti-war views, though, got him locked up in a French prison, an experience that inspired his first novel, The Enormous Room. It's a book sprinkled with references to the Christian classic Pilgrim's Progress, though Cummings' point is really the opposite of progress. He portrays his incarceration, and by extension the war itself, as a kind of corrosive, meaningless limbo, a drift without direction, going nowhere. Ever felt that way? Like you're going neither forward nor backward, just sort of suspended in between? We crave purposeful movement, one way or another, a path, a way, a route from here to there. It can be a straight line, or a meandering one, or a circle, or a spiral, or a labyrinth eventually making its way to the center of things. But in any case, we crave a road to travel. The earliest name for the movement following Jesus was The Way. You can find it in the book of Acts, the story of the rise of the church. And at the very beginning of the story, even before Jesus arrives on the scene, a path is exactly what John the baptizer has to offer. A way forward, a new chapter, a pilgrim's progress for the sake of freedom and peace and new life. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. In the first episode of this series, we explored how the Bible is made of poetry, in the ancient sense of the term, poesis, making stories and songs and visions through which we can live. But does calling the Bible poetry lessen the extent to which it's true? No. On the contrary, it helps us specify the kind of truth to which the Bible's stories and songs and visions aspire. Think of it this way. A modern scientist, a botanist, say, can rightly describe autumn's falling leaves as part of the tree's annual cycle of collecting solar energy during the longer days of summer and then shedding those vulnerable solar collectors, that is, the leaves, during the shorter days of ice and snow in the winter. And all that's true, of course, true in a botanical kind of way. And a poet might see the same phenomenon and describe it quite differently without denying the botanical perspective at all. Take Cummings' poem, The Glory is Fallen Out Of, where he takes the falling leaves as an occasion to meditate on death, and also on the courage it takes to truly change and transform our lives, which always involves a certain kind of death, a letting go, a moving on. And all of that's true too, of course, true in a poetical kind of way. Cummings puts it like this, apparently addressing the poem to God. Oh, let us descend. Take, shimmering wind, these fragile splendors from us. Crumple them, hide them in thy breath. Drive them in nothingness, for we would sleep. This is the passing of all shining things, 
No lingering, no backward wondering be unto us, O soul, but straight glad feet, fear-ruining and glory-girded faces lead us into the serious, steep darkness. Again, an anthropologist might see a woman washing in the Ganges River in northern India and describe her in cultural, religious, anthropological terms, and it all may be true in an anthropological kind of way. And then there's Mary Oliver, who once traveled to Varanasi and wrote a poem of the same name, describing such a woman this way. Standing in the river up to her waist, She was lifting handfuls of water and spilling it over her body, slowly and many times, as if until there came some moment of inner satisfaction between her own life and the rivers. I can't say much more, except that it all happened in silence and peaceful simplicity, and something that felt like the bliss of a certainty and a life lived in accordance with that certainty. I must remember this, I thought, as we fly back to America. Pray God I remember this. Now, is this poem true? Well, we can only imagine that it truly reports Oliver's experience of that day on the river, And in any case, it doesn't contradict but only complements what an anthropologist might report or what the woman herself might say. Truth on top of truth on top of truth. Similarly, an ornithologist might emphasize the competition between birds as they seek out mates and food and avoid predators, and that's true. And another ornithologist might emphasize the cooperation between birds, how different species sometimes travel together in flocks, or how when a western bluebird couple is raising a clutch of babies, sometimes one of their adult sons will return to their nest to help them. A glimpse of what the poet Isaiah, that is, the prophet Isaiah, might call the peaceable kingdom, a new world without conflict or violence where the wolf shall live with the lamb, and where all creatures will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Truth on top of truth on top of truth. Layers all around us, each one as beautiful and compelling as the last. The Gospel of Matthew is no different, of course. The poet Matthew describes John the Baptizer with details that evoke the ancient prophet Elijah, his camel's hair clothing and his leather belt, for starters. And at the same time, Matthew casts him as the fulfillment of Isaiah's ancient vision of a voice in the wilderness, ushering in a day when God's glory will be revealed and all people shall see it together. The point of this poesis is clear. God, Matthew declares, has raised up another Elijah in the wilderness, out beyond the coordinates and control of the empire's military occupation. God is on the move, 
and the dawn of a new era of redemption, heralded by Elijah's return, has arrived. A new way is opening up. A new path has become possible. And that's precisely why the crowds go out to see John the Baptizer in the first place, there along the River Jordan, that old waterway of freedom, that old boundary of the Promised Land. John the Baptizer is offering a new step forward, out of the doldrums of apathy or guilt, sadness or self-doubt. Many of us crave the same thing today, a new chapter, a fresh start. Maybe it's an infusion of energy we long for, or the opposite, a sense of peaceful calm as we prepare for the hibernation of winter. Or maybe it's a return a getting back to a passion we've lost touch with, or the chutzpah to begin a new adventure, to at last pursue a long-deferred dream. In any case, whether it's renewal or calm or circling back or branching out, what we long for, in a word, is change. A change of mind, a change of heart, a change of life. Now, to name this transformation, John the Baptizer, according to Matthew, uses the Greek word metanoia. Meta, or change, as in metamorphosis, and noia, or mind, the place the ancient Greeks thought was the seat, the essence of the human person. Metanoia, change of mind, heart, life. And that's the word, metanoia, typically translated into English as repentance. It is about being sorry for the past, but the emphasis is on the changes going forward that will make for a new, more life-giving future. What changes exactly? Well, it depends on the circumstances, of course, but the poet John the Baptizer sums it up as bearing fruit. Not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, and not presuming anything, as though our religious identity alone is enough, or having the right opinions is enough. No, John says, bear fruit, change, repent, set out on a new, more fruitful path, and do it now. Why? Well, first of all, because you were born to bear fruit to do acts of love and justice, like a tree in an orchard is born to be fruitful. And also because Jesus is coming to gather the wheat and burn the chaff. Now, up to this point, this bit about the wheat and the chaff, John's message seems strikingly open and inclusive. The offer, the opportunity, is extended to everyone, not just insiders, but outsiders too, not just a subset of particular opinion holders. There's no doctrinal test here, but rather anyone and everyone who bears fruit. So, on first glance, even though John's tone is stern and challenging, you brood of vipers is quite an opening line for a sermon. His message is nonetheless good news worth celebrating. God's salvation is radically, gloriously open to all. 
Step right up and step right in to the waters of that iconic river and change your life. Here John employs yet another kind of poetry. We might call it the poesis of ritual or liturgy. On one level, John borrows an ancient Jewish practice of baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism. To be immersed in water was a way of poetically signifying a comprehensive conversion from head to toe. But here, John, rather provocatively, calls on everyone, even consummate religious insiders, to undergo this baptism too, as if to say, we all require conversion, not just the Gentiles. For a new day, a new era is at hand. Change your minds and hearts and lives. Come and be baptized for the sake of forgiveness of sins, for God is coming near. And at the same time, on another level, through the geography of the situation, John is poetically referencing, reenacting even, the ancient Exodus story. This isn't just any old river. This is the River Jordan, the water at the brink of freedom, the culmination of the journey from bondage in Egypt, through the wilderness wandering, and into the promised land. This baptism is nothing less than a new exodus, a new step into a new life of freedom. Free from what? From anxiety, from self-absorption, apathy, greed, a new exodus open to all. But then, John announces Jesus's imminent arrival, and the image, well, it doesn't seem particularly open or inclusive. I mean, this is Jesus with a winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to baptize with fire, not water, and separate the wheat from the chaff and burn the chaff. And that's supposed to be the good news of the gospel? The problem here is that this poetic image has long been read as if it's about separating good people from bad people. But if we read more closely without that preconception, it turns out that that's the opposite of what John has in mind. After all, every grain of wheat has a husk, right? Every single one. And farmers, back then and today, use wind to separate the grains of wheat from the husks, which collectively are called the chaff. And the goal of all this, of course, is to save every grain, not to separate the good grain from the bad grain. This is a poetic figure of preservation and refinement and liberation, not division. What the wind and fire remove are the husks that get in the way, the anxieties, self-absorption, apathy, greed that make us less generous, less just, less loving, less respectful. And sure enough, later in the New Testament, this is exactly how the wind and fire of the Holy Spirit work. Not to destroy, but to sanctify, refine, challenge, restore, and empower. What's more, this way of understanding the poetry here is consistent with the rest of John's sermon. He's inviting all of us into the transformative, restorative, liberating waters of baptism. But he doesn't then turn around and say that Jesus will baptize with exclusion and hellfire. 
No, he's saying that Jesus too will baptize in a transformative, restorative, liberating way, adding to the cleansing power of water the refining, liberating power of fire, burning away the husks that hold us back. Poetry on top of poetry, truth on top of truth. If the posture of Advent and Christmas is keeping awake and being ready, the pathway of Advent and Christmas is a pathway of change, of repentance, of new life, a pilgrim's progress, moving away from conflict toward peace, from bondage toward freedom, from apathy and drift toward action and fruitfulness, away from fear, toward courage, what the poet Cummings calls glad feet and fear-ruining and glory-girded faces, away from fragmentation toward wholeness, remembering our baptism or Jesus' baptism, pouring the water, as the poet Oliver puts it, slowly and many times, in silence and peaceful simplicity, until there comes some moment of inner satisfaction between our own lives and the rivers. The Prince of Peace is on the way. So bear fruit, dive in, step onto the path of metanoia and new life. Let the spirit burn the husks away and move on from the tight fist of violence, which is the same tight fist of exclusion and move toward the open hand and hospitality evoked by the poet Isaiah, heralding the coming day when no one will hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer-Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer-Bolton. Music is by Pablo J. Garman, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And if you want to go deeper, SALT has downloadable devotionals based on Mary Oliver's poetry, E.E. Cummings' poetry, and The Wonders of Birds. You can check out all three in the store at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.